joy to everybody here, and I just love how joyful she is. So um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of our church. We are glad that God brought you to this place. So um, turn your Bibles to Judges 14, but before you do that, um, we as a church, our mission is to be disciples of Jesus. That's who we're defined as, and then we want to grow as disciples and then make disciples. And so one critical aspect of that is, is growing. We want to constantly be growing in our knowledge and our understanding of the Lord. So one of our goals for this year um, is to, to help build a strong foundation in, in, in who we are, what we believe, what we know about God's word. And, and so we're going to do that by going through a bunch of questions and answers. These are just doctrinal questions and answers. Um, now, I heard that the word catechism actually throws people off because it, it seems like something from some weird formalistic traditions. But really, the early church has been doing this ever since the very first generation, teaching people about Jesus, about who God is, about who we are and, and, and doing that in the form of questions and answers because it's easier for us to remember those things. So to, together as a church, each and every week, as I mentioned last week, we'll be going through the, the new catechism, new city catechism together. Last week went to question one, so this, today we're going to go through question number two. And so the question for today is who, or sorry, what is God? What is God? That's the question. All right, so we're going to do this together, and we're going to answer it together. So what is God? Now, let's answer that together. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Amen. What a, what a great opener as well to this passage, because this passage is all about God working despite a whole bunch of weirdness, a whole bunch of mistakes and problems and difficult people, and we're going to see that, that God is at work to carry out his will, and nothing happens apart from his will. So turn your Bibles to Judges 14. Be reading verses 1 through 20. And in case you're wondering, if you're visiting with us or maybe you're new today, um, by the way, my name is Matt, and I'm glad. I would love to have a chance to be able to meet you afterwards. But we've been going through the book of Judges as a church. We took a pause during the Christmas season. We are back to it. We'll be finishing it up over the next eight weeks or so. And the book of Judges, it reveals something about God primarily. These are not just lessons to learn about what not to do or be like this hero, or don't be like this anti-hero. But these are lessons for us to learn to see something about ourselves and something about God. So let's read God's holy inspired word together. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At this time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or his mother what he'd done. 
Then he, he went down and talked with the woman who, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do and as soon as the people saw him they brought 30 companions to be with him and Samson said to them let me now put a riddle to you. If you could tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I haven't told my father or my mother. Now shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, out of the messiness of this story, that you would bring clarity. God, I pray that, that we, would, we would glean from Scripture what you would have for us. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes by your Holy Spirit, that we would receive from you. And, and Lord, I pray that your word would go forth powerfully today by your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up as a kid, I always liked detective shows. I love to watch, and I might be dating myself quite a bit. I like to watch shows like Perry Mason. Um, yeah, that was a detective show in case people under 30 are wondering what Perry Mason is. I like to watch Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo. He was probably my favorite. You know, he always said that, well, you should see, there's a little thing here, and he always kind of come up with this surprise thing, uh, where he would see what had happened and, and he would discover and he kind of lay it all out and it just seemed really simple but he was obviously really clever and I liked them because there was a sense of mystery and I, and I probably also liked them because there were clues given throughout the show so that it made you as, a, as somebody watching the show want to figure out what was going on and then if you did figure it out before the end of the show before the big reveal happened before Columbo peeled his egg you know before before that occurred then it makes you feel really smart because you figure things out. Because there, there's something in us that, that likes to know, that likes to figure things out. I, I like a mystery, but as, as long as I can solve it, as long as the mystery is unraveled and revealed and I can, I can see those things, I like a mystery, but I don't like mysteries when it comes to my own life. I don't, I don't want to not know. There's, there's not many of us who are comfortable with not knowing, not understanding. We, 
When it comes to why are things happening in our life, why do things happen in our life like they do? Why are people difficult? Why do we continue to sin and, and, and what's going on in our lives? When it comes to those kinds of mysteries, that's, that's not very fun. This passage is, is given for God's people to be understand what's happening in the midst of not knowing. What's, meant, what's happening in the midst of, of mystery? And, and it reveals, really, this whole passage shows that they were all involved in mysteries of sorts. There's this recurring theme of mystery, of people not knowing. And that they're somehow in the dark. And everybody in the passage is, in fact, in the dark in some way. Everyone in the passage doesn't really know. At the very beginning, his, his parents, they don't know what in the world is our son doing? This is nuts. He's supposed to be the chosen one. What's he doing? What's going on? They don't know. And then we see that Samson doesn't really know. He, he, doesn't, he also doesn't share with his parents what, what he knows about him killing a lion. They don't, they don't know. They're in the dark. His parents are in the dark not only about killing a lion, but they're also in dark about the fact that he's, he's gotten honey from this carcass. And he's giving them... Uh, carcass-tainted honey or <laughs> something I think I'd want to know, you know. They, they don't know. There's a mystery here. And then, and then Samson shares a riddle, and not even his wife knows the riddle, and his parents don't know the riddle, and nobody can figure out. There's, there's just not knowing that goes throughout the entire passage. And in fact, his wife weeps over him because she doesn't know. And then the last line, it ends with this cliffhanger, actually, because what we find out in the next chapter is that Samson doesn't know that last line of this passage. Samson doesn't know that his companion, his friend, who was his best man, stood up with him at his wedding, has married his wife now. And Samson doesn't know that. And we're going we're to see that in the next chapter. But this, from the beginning to the end, there's this not knowing, this mystery, this, this, this secret purpose is going throughout this passage, and, and people seem to be unaware, not knowing. But there's clues to what's going on in this messy, complicated person of Samson. Samson was, was very, very messy. But, but at first, you think in chapter 13, if you remember way before Christmas time, in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord had come and pronounced that he would begin to save the people, the spirit of, oh, sorry, that's the spirit of the Lord, but yeah, he begin to save the people from the Philistines. And at the end of chapter 13, we have great hope. It says the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. And so you think, wow, this guy's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden you're confused when this passage hits because Samson is not the amazing savior he's prophesied to be. He's one of only, in fact, seven birth narratives in the entire Bible. And every other one of those birth narratives is significant covenantally. And, and, there's, there's, and it culminates in Jesus. And so you think, whoa, Samson, he's this great promising figure. And then what is going on in this passage? It's a mystery, right? And you think, what in the world's going on? But there's clues that the author has left in plain sight if we will see them. Look at verse 4. It's really the key to understanding the whole passage. Look down your Bibles in verse 4. It says, his father and mother did not know. Okay, we got that, right? But here's what they didn't know. They did not know that it meaning all of Samson's bad choices, his sinful behavior and choosing an uncircumcised Philistine, they didn't know that it was from the Lord. 
because he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. That's the key to the passage. It was from the Lord. God is at work throughout the chapter from beginning to end. We're going to see that God is at work through Samson and all of his flaws and, and sinful choices and bad behavior. And, and God is at work through, through impossible circumstances. And then God is at work through other people and difficult people. But all throughout this passage, God, here's the key. Here's the, here's the main takeaway that I believe God would have for us this morning. He said, is that God is at work to bring about his salvation in unexpected ways, even when... We don't know it. We don't know it often in our lives. We don't know. We don't know what's going on. We don't, we don't understand. Things are foggy and confusing for us. And, and so this passage helps us see behind the curtain, helps us see that, no, God is at work. And he's bringing about his salvation in unexpected ways, even when we don't know it. It's meant to build our faith. Yes, this passage is meant to serve as a, as a warning, to show us that the results, of the pain, the difficulty that result from disobedience to God. And then it also shows us this going down. And I don't know if you noticed that, but five times in the passage, it says that, that people go down, that Samson's going down, his parents are going down, they're going down, they're going down. That's not an accident. The author is trying to see this as, this is a downward progression. They're going down to the Philistines every time, down to God's enemies, God's people's enemies, down to the uncircumcised. They're, they're going down to the world. But over all of that, we see that God, he, he's at work. He's ruling and reigning all over. Even they're going down. And he's, he's graciously still working through his servant, even in the midst of sin. He's still empowering and enabling his servant, um, even through all of his mistakes. And boy, that's good news for us, right? That God's graciousness to be at work in us, even through our sin and disobedience, should give us hope in him. And, and, and that's, that's really the first truth that we discover in these first four verses, that God is at work even through our bad choices and even through our sin. Let me say that again. God's at work even through your and my bad choices. And, and let's all admit it, we make bad choices. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, before we go to judging Samson, we have to say that, wait a minute, we make bad choices too. We do what seems right. In our eyes. And we sin. But yet God's at work even through our bad choices and sin. Samson, he's this unconventional, brave, witty, and yet fierce man. He, he was born to save Israel. And, and he was a spiritual man. He was a Nazarite devoted by God from birth. He was chosen before he was even born. Chosen by God to be set apart for God. And we see that his strength was in his keeping his hair long. Now, that was actually an outward sign of just the fact that his strength was in his obedience to God and his weakness was when he disobeyed God. And yet we've seen this chapter, this, this great hero. He immediately gives in to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so it opens with ominously saying, he went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah, it was a town that was really close to where he lived, but it was a town still occupied and ruled by the Philistines because the Israelites had not obeyed God. They, they had become complacent with the things of the world. They had been, been okay with God's enemies in their midst. They were, had made peace with the enemies of God and made them their neighbors. And we see that Samson obviously had befriended them because one of his best friends, in fact, his best man, his companion, was Timnah. He was a Philistine. God's people had cozied up with the world and kind of embraced them. 
And so Samson was a picture of that embracing of the world, embracing of God's enemies and becoming complacent. And so I think there's a warning here for us that, that not to relax around the people of the world and, and become like them. Now, it's not, not, it's not saying that we shouldn't become friends with people who are in the world because otherwise how in the world will we share the good news with them? But let's, let's do that with our eyes open, seeing that our, we're not to be influenced by them. We're not to become like them, not to be driven by the same things of the world. And how easy it is for us to, to kind of be amongst the world. And we can use the excuse, well, we're befriending the world because um, we want to share the gospel. Well, that never happens. And in fact, we actually just kind of blend in and become assimilated into the culture around us. And that's what Samson has done. He's blended in. He's become assimilated. And, you know, you think, why? Well, hanging out with people of the world, it's not going to corrupt me. It's not going to tempt me. And, and yet you see that this... This one of seven chosen children who is empowered by God, filled with his spirit, chosen as the one who would begin to save Israel, he's tempted. So if Samson can be tempted, then maybe you and I can as well. And so Samson, he sees, it says, he saw the daughter of the Philistines. And it says twice, he saw her, I saw her, I saw her. And then it says, he, she seemed right in his eyes. His parents objected. They suggested that, you know what, you, you really should marry somebody from at least your own tribe or at least anybody in the whole nation. Couldn't you obey God? Won't you obey God? Is what they're trying to encourage him towards is to obey God and his commandments because God had commanded that they not intermarry with anyone else outside of the tribes of Israel. And they even mentioned, they said, this, what about this, this uncircumcised Philistine? And three times it mentions that she's a Philistine, she's a Philistine, she's an uncircumcised Philistine. Why would you join yourself to someone who hates God's people? And yeah, it's a temptation for us today, too. That's why in 2 Corinthians 6, at 14, it commands God's people not to, to, to be joined together with, with someone who's not a believer. There's the danger. Don't fool yourself into thinking we can do that. But how easy is it for us to evaluate people by what seems right in our eyes and, and what seems pleasing to us? And maybe they're attractive in some ways when we think they can give us things or maybe how they look or how they act or how much fun they are. We share common interests. But, but belonging to God's people is part of our core identity. That's actually, we're, we're to be disciples of Jesus. That's our core identity. So to join with somebody who's, who's a follower of the devil, it shouldn't be. And so Samson, he, he's doing that. He's doing, and it, it says something here. It says, Get her for she is right in my eyes. And then we're going to see that when Samson leads that way, the rest of Israel is going to go that way very quickly. He says, get her for she's right in my eyes. And then in verse 7 again, he repeats that. He says, she's right in my eyes. He goes and talks to her and they have a lot in common and she seems like fun. And, and so he says, she's right in my eyes. But she was wrong in God's eyes. But it's easy to be led by the lust of the eyes, isn't it? What seems right to us? How about you? Are you led by your eyes? Are you led by what seems right to you? I want you to think about that for a moment. How, how do you evaluate what your choices are? How do you evaluate what you watch, what you listen to? How do you evaluate the path you take in life, the things you do, your time? How you spend your money. How do you evaluate those things? Are you evaluating them by, by what God's word says and what is good for us and, and what is truly right for us? Or do you evaluate those things and, and make your decisions based on what seems right in your eyes? Samson serves as a warning here. 
It's easy in a days of digital distractions and an easily accessible digital debauchery. It's, it's easy to be ensnared by an image and just, you know, choose to take a look. It won't do any harm. It seems right in our eyes. But, but here we can see that this, this path of doing what's right in our own eyes, it leads to pain, it leads to suffering, it leads to difficulty and hardship. And Samson, he makes wrong choices here. This is not endorsing Samson's choices, but, but Scripture doesn't candy coat things either. It doesn't say that all of the people who God picks are perfect. And in fact, no one God picks in the Bible is perfect. And he doesn't choose us because we're perfect. He chooses us because we're actually unable to rescue ourselves. But his parents must have been beside themselves. What's going on? This is the chosen child? He's supposed to save Israel, and yet he's going and joining our enemy? And what we're seeing here is that God is still going to use Samson for all of his flaws and his, his disobedience and all of his sin. And he's sovereignly working to bring about his plans. That it doesn't make any excuses for his bad choices and for his sins. But what it reveals is that God is not limited by our sin and disobedience. God is not limited by our wrong choices. God is at work secretly, even though our sinfulness and mistakes seem to thwart those things, they do not. God is at work in and through our sinfulness and mistakes to bring about his plans and his purposes, and nothing will stop God's plan to save. That's what we see in this passage. And we also see that God is at work through impossible circumstances. He's not just at work through our bad choices and through our sin. God is at work through impossible circumstances. And let me tell you, facing a lion is pretty impossible. <laughs> Last year on a hike, we as a family, we were coming down from the mountain and we encountered a bear, a very large bear who, who seemed to be quite big. It was one of the biggest black bears I've ever seen, actually, and, and he was very close. He was like from, from Aaron to me, and, which is, by the way, way too close for a bear. And then, and then he stopped and he stood up and was with one paw on a tree and was standing up and watching us. I'm like, oh, no. So we gathered together, we tried to be really big and passed by. And what was going through my head was, this is not going to go well for me. I think that with like mace and maybe my knife, I can slow the bear down enough until he kills me and maybe they can run away. But it was impossible that I would have survived if the bear attacked. And we couldn't have outrun him. So I'm like, well, as long as I can get in between my family and him, we'll be, they'll be fine. But that's impossible because I can't fight a bear on my own. Now, now Samson, he goes down to this passes by this vineyard, and as he goes, goes down again, it says, you know, he's, he went down towards the Philistines, and he goes down to this vineyard, and this lion comes out roaring. Now, there's no longer lions in Palestine, but, but there were in that day, and archaeologists have found that as well. So there was this lion, and it comes out roaring. Now, I can't imagine facing a lion roaring at me one-on-one. -on -one. You don't make it out of that alive. Now, even worse, Samson didn't have mace, he didn't have a knife, he didn't have anything in his hands. Just, he, he was barehanded, he, he was empty-handed. And here's the thing, it doesn't even say he prayed. He didn't cry out to God. He, he wasn't a, a noble figure saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. No! Even through this impossible circumstance, God rushed upon him. His spirit rushed upon Samson. And it enabled Samson to be so strong that he rips apart this lion. Like they would, they would rip apart a goat. They would take his, his legs, the hind legs, it sounds gross, and they would tear it apart and prepare it for butchering. Samson's ripping this lion apart. 
It appears seemingly out of nowhere, yet this impossible circumstance. And I think God actually sent this lion so that, so that Samson would know that when his strength on his own is, is not sufficient, when things are impossible, God is at work through impossible circumstances through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's something for us to see as well. Here's the, here's the wonderful news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then, then Jesus says that, that he's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us. And so we're never alone. It's never impossible because God is at work through his Spirit in the midst of the impossible. And so the Spirit rushes on him and he rips this line apart, but he doesn't tell anybody, which is kind of shocking. Now, now here's the thing. Um, contrary to, and you might have a coloring page. I don't know if you do or not. Um, contrary to... What we see in children's storybook Bibles, Samson is never described as Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's never like this big dude, right? He's never described that way in Scripture. It never says like Samson was working out. He was pumping stones. I mean, not iron because I don't know if they had that. But, you know, he, he doesn't say Samson was a weightlifter, man. He was like really into bodybuilding. It never says that. It never says he was ripped. Never, but always it says his power, his strength came as the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. The Holy Spirit empowered him. You know, it's not the only time we see the idea of a, God's enemies being foreshadowed by lions. Samson's going down to the Philistines. He encounters the lions. He conquers them by his spirit. And I think God was trying to show him, this is what I'll do to the Philistines. They might be like lions who roar. But I'm, my spirit will enable you to conquer. And he still pursues his sinful way. But you know what, David, in, in 1 Samuel, when, when David was about to face Goliath, and they said, there's no way you can defeat him. There's no way you can defeat a Goliath. And, and so then David's answer to them was, um, the Lord enabled me to kill a lion and a bear. And this Goliath, he, he's just like that lion. God will enable me. That's what we're meant to see. God, God is, is the one who works in and through the impossible by his spirit to save, to rescue. But he's like, oh, it's no big deal. He kills a lion. He was humble about it. He, he goes down, he talks to the woman, and again it says she was right in Samson's eyes. He didn't get the lesson that his strength came from depending upon the Lord. He goes back to take her. He, he agrees to marry her. And the surprising thing is that these bees have made a, a, a colony in this carcass of a lion, which is strange because bees almost never do that. It was, that was an impossible circumstance. And yet, out of this impossible circumstance, God provided sustenance for him. These, these bees make honey, and so he scoops out this honey out of the carcass of a lion and he eats it and he, he gives it to his parents and it's interesting it says there's a swarm of bees but that's actually the word for swarm it, it literally means a community of bees which is kind of an odd thing to say because that word for community is only and ever used of God's people in the Old Testament and so there's this defiled body this unclean animal was host to a community of of sweetness and provision. Out of decay, God, through his community, brings sweetness and provision. Canaan, Canaan was this land that was defiled. It was to be the host to the community of God's people who would bring about sweetness and provision to the world. And so there's something for us to see, that God is working in and through difficult and possible circumstances. Just like today, as, as God's people, we're, we're living in the midst of a defiled world, but were to be a means of his grace to bring sweetness to the world in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyway, he, Samson, he, he reaches into this carcass and he 
scrapes out the honeycomb with his hands, and he takes it and he eats it. He goes back to his parents, and he still doesn't tell them. They don't know. But we know. We know that what, what God is showing us is that he's at work, not only through the sin and disobedience of Samson, but through impossible circumstances. And the final thing we'll see in this passage is that God is at work through difficult people. And that's good news. You know why? Because we're going to encounter difficult people in our lives, not just our own sin and disobedience and impossible circumstances, but, but difficult people, challenging people, people who will try to manipulate us. And yet God's at work through these difficult people. The father goes down to retrieve the woman. It would have been the custom of the day because they would have um, gone to pay a dowry price to secure the right to marry. And then Samson goes down to prepare the seven days of feasting. And then the little word for feasting is, is drinking. It's, Samson goes down to prepare this seven-day drinking party. That's a long time to party, by the way. And that'd be really expensive to prepare. You know, it's expensive enough to prepare a, a wedding feast. But could you imagine a wedding feast that lasts seven days? That'd be difficult. And immediately he's, he's faced with the difficult people who are trying to take advantage of him because it says that they brought 30 companions to be with them. That wasn't a, a kind gesture, by the way. <laughs> that was them trying to take advantage of him and like, hey, um, we're going to bring these 30 guys to be with you in addition to your wedding party and everybody else who was invited and all of her family and your family and everybody's there. Um, here's these 30 guys, by the way, and so you're going to provide for them too and they're going to hang out with you and be with you for seven days. And they're difficult men, obviously. He tells them this riddle. They don't know the answer to the riddle. And then after three days, they get irate. They get so mad that they threaten to kill her, to burn her alive and burn down her father's house. These are difficult people. But his wife is no picnic either. She doesn't tell him, hey, by the way, I'm being threatened. My life is being threatened. And if she knew Samson and knew that God's spirit was on him and that he was empowered by the spirit of God that he was called to save, she, she might have asked him, Samson, could you help? Could you rescue me? But she doesn't do that. She's difficult. She keeps things from him. She manipulates. She deceives him. And then it says she weeps for seven days. I cannot imagine it's seven days of your brand new wife weeping. What a great start to a marriage, Right? They try to figure it out. She tries to figure it out. She goes, you only hate me. You don't love me. That's everybody's dream for starting your honeymoon. And he says, I didn't tell my parents. Shall I tell you? And she, can, she continues to press him hard. And she tells, he tells the riddle to her, and then she tells the riddle to her people. His own wife betrays him right at the very beginning. Samson is faced with very difficult people. He's faced with these 30 men who are brutal, who are harsh, who are mean. He's faced with his, his wife is difficult. And then actually we'll see that his best friend, his best man, his companion, his best man is, is going to betray him. His father-in-law betrays him. And, and yet what do we see in the midst of all this is that we see that, that God is at work. Look at verse 19. You know, there's no, no real love between him and his wife. And yet, when he's betrayed, and they tell him the answer, 
It doesn't say that on his own strength he has this idea. No, here's what's happening. God is actually even using these difficult people in this betrayal, and God is at work. Look in verse 19. It says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and because of that, he went down to Ashkelon. The Spirit of the Lord led him to strike down 30 of the men of the town and take their spoil and give garments to those who had told the riddle. The Holy Spirit, what we see at the very beginning, in verse 4, God was at work, and then we see the Holy Spirit empowering him, and then we see here finally that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is rushing on him. God's at work, even through his sin, through difficult people, circumstances, God is at work the whole time. The Holy Spirit is at work. Unless we become really uncomfortable with this because he's killing people, we have to see that actually this is the Spirit of the Lord doing this. This isn't Samson taking revenge. This is the Spirit of the Lord motivating him and sending him down to Ashkelon because God is bringing about his divine judgment on his enemies. God's at work to begin to save. Now it's a small beginning. But you know, even in our lives, those those small beginnings are meant to show us that God's at work. Think in your own life. Where, where can I look back and see those small ways that God has been faithful, that God's been good, that God's provided, that he's been with me? Reminding ourselves, where has God been at work to begin to reveal himself? Now, here's the, the truth is that Samson began to save, but he never fully saved. But God was at work to bring his salvation about Samson's life, it's meant as a warning. It's dangerous, it's painful to do what's right in our own eyes. This is not God's will, that his, his desire was not that Samson would disobey, yet, but God purposed that through his sin, through his bad choices, God's purpose was to make him uncomfortable with the Philistines. He'd become friends with them, and God's like, no. I'm gonna make it so that you're uncomfortable with the people of the world, the things of the world, so that you carry out my purposes because God doesn't want us to get comfortable with the people of the world, the things of the world. And then troubles, they might come suddenly on us like this lion. We don't have any weapon in our hands that can deliver us in our own power. But as we trust in the spirit, he, he will bring his deliverance. He can bring his sweet food out of decay. He even works through our, our bad choices, through our mistakes, through impossible circumstances, through difficult people to bring about his purposes, to carry out his will to save. This whole passage is actually meant to, to reveal things about ourselves, but more importantly, to reveal something about God. It's to reveal there's temptations, very real temptations that we face to, to do what's right in our own eyes, to live according to our own rules. There's temptations that we'll face, and when we face the impossible circumstances. There's, there's temptations we face when we deal with difficult people, and yet we're meant to see that God is at work. It's meant to engender trust and hope in him. And it's easy to judge Samson, isn't it? But you know what? If our entire life was written down in four vignettes um, over, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, four chapters in the Bible, and that would take less than 30 minutes to read, if your entire life was written down like that and your mistakes were highlighted, I don't, I don't think there would only be Three or four mistakes. It'd probably be a whole lot more. And yet God is the one who rescues. God is the one who saves. God is the one who is at work despite all of those things. All our grossest weaknesses. All our failings. All our sins. Don't look back. Maybe, maybe as we start this new year, looking back at all your sins, all your disobedience, and you think, I, there's no way God can work through me. And here's the thing. God 
is at work even through our sins and disobedience. It doesn't endorse that, but it gives us faith that he will never leave those who place their trust, their hope in him, who have been chosen by him. God doesn't leave. We all rest on the grace of God by faith. Our only strength that lies in trusting in God and the strength of his spirit supplies. And, and ultimately, we don't look to Samson as a hero or our own abilities. We don't look to save ourselves, to be always obedient, to be perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful, to be, to be strong enough, to be good enough, to, to work out in the spirit even enough that we are spiritually so strong that we're going to resist all these enemies. No, our trust, our hope is in the Holy Spirit to be our strength. And more importantly, we have, most importantly, we have a Savior who has never failed us. You know, that, that, that word's repeated. He, he went down. They went down. Five times there's this going down to the enemies of God. And they're going down not to fight them. They're going down to become a part of them. Well, in the very end, Savior, uh, Samson is a Savior figure. When he's, he's in, he goes down to fight them. But, but four times they're going down to join them. And, and, and I love that it says that because you, you know what it says of Christ is that he came down. He went down, not to, not to join, but he came down to, to defeat every enemy. He didn't come down to join. He didn't come down to, to, to be a part of the sinful world, to, to join into our sin and join into disobedience. No, he came down to fight our disobedience, to conquer sin, to conquer temptation in every area where what seemed right in our eyes, Jesus did what was right in the Father's eyes. He went down, and he went down to fight Jesus came down and he fought every enemy. He fought the enemy of our disobedience, of, of death, of hell, impossible circumstances. He conquered um, the worldly powers. He, even the, the very acts of nature, Jesus came down to show that he has power over them. That nothing can thwart his purposes, his plans to save. And here's the good news. He didn't just come down. He, he came down to die so that he might be raised up. And our hope is in this resurrected Christ, the Savior who forever lives, who's forever perfect, who is risen for us, who is reigning and ruling, who is our ultimate judge in whom we hope. He's the true lion of Judah. And he conquers the false lion. You know, the devil roams about like a roaring lion. Jesus is the true lion. And he's conquered the imposter. He's completed salvation of his people he's paid the bride price on his own and in the place of death in the place of decay on the cross in the place of slaughter he brings forth his sweet food and he shares it with us God's at work to bring about a salvation in unexpected ways even we don't know it so how we respond to this I think we're going to see God's grace, God's gracious work, not just the Old Testament, but now, that he doesn't relate to us on the basis of our obedience and our sins. and He's not thwarted by all the mistakes we made. He's not thwarted by other people and possible circumstances. He's not thwarted by those things. He is graciously at work, and he calls us to trust in him in response to look to him, to see his gracious work each and every day, and then actually to live for him, and then to receive that sweet food that he has for us that comes out of the decay, out of death. He brings 
new life and sweetness and fulfillment. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we're meant to take that sweetness and, and give it to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal truth about us, but you reveal truth ultimately about you that we can hope in and put our confidence in and trust in and that, Lord, inspires us. Your grace inspires us to want to live for you. God, let us live for you, completely devoted, consecrated, set apart to you because you've set us apart. Lord, may we hope in you, trust in your Holy Spirit, your strength, your power. In your name we pray, amen.